shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, once again, it's time to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zebalero. I got to tell you, man, pretty awesome day. Here I am sitting in Branson, Missouri, looking out over to the great, I don't know, I guess it's the Branson River. I don't even know what the heck it's called, but there's water out there. I can tell you that. Uh, and here's the man that knows his geography. The guy who you can beat in trivia crack, but not on geography questions, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how you doing? I'm doing well, man. What are you doing in Branson? So I'm going to be doing the <laughs> keynote. I'm going to be doing the keynote address, uh, leadership and civil disobedience, and covering you know the the Ferguson crisis. And well, cool. uh, yeah, talk. So I'm going to really kind of take it from the side of uh, what were the leadership lessons that we learned, you know, and not just uh, from the leadership side, but also from the provider side. And I'm really looking forward to it. You know, I, I've kind of been yeah. asked to come around the, the United States and and give this lecture. And uh, it's going to be great to do it in front of the home state. And uh, then I'll be on the road, and I'll do it again in uh, South Carolina in September, so I'm really excited about that. I'm going to be doing a little overview at Pinnacle next week in Jacksonville. So, you know, it, it's really been cool, man. I mean, people want to hear about it. And i got to tell you, Kelly, just between you and me, man, I'm a little bit worried, a little bit nervous for the folks up there at Christian Hospital uh, with the one-year anniversary coming up the 9th of August, and, and hopefully there's going to be no, uh, you know, no resurgence of civil unrest. And I just heard before we got on the line, believe it or not, that Fiddy Senna's in town. Old Fiddy is trying to push his vodka, and they're asking him to come down there to Ferguson, Missouri, and kind of talk about, uh, you know, kind of advocacy for the uh, whole issue that happened down there. So they're actually uh, here from uh, folks up there at Christian Hospital that they're trying to get some trucks down there just in case tonight. And I got to tell you, man, I mean, they just need to put this to bed and move along. But uh, yep. I don't have a good feeling about the uh, one-year anniversary, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I well, let's, let's pray that, uh, that it doesn't erupt into... Uh another episode of unrest and um you know that's up to the people of ferguson um you know do they want to destroy their community again or or do they want to move past it um no telling yeah, um, so with... the, the conference there in missouri is that is that the, the same one where we first started uh when we first hatched the idea of inside ems is that they're instructed coordinator and evaluators conference? Or? No, they have two. I mean, they, they have that instructor. Okay. It's called the ICE Conference, Instructor Coordinator yeah. Examiner Conference, and that's the one, as Kelly mentions, we actually sat around the fireplace, and, and that's where I coined the term the Ted Nugent of EMS, and uh, <laughs> we, we bantered back and forth about what the Inside EMS podcast would look like. Kelly, what is that going back now, maybe two and a half years already? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah, and, we've, and, we've done a lot of it. Right, and then they go ahead and they do a uh, conference, uh, which is just a state conference. I guess it's for everybody, and they do usually do it in July, uh, and that's why I'm here. So I'm excited, man. I think it's going nice to be really cool. A bunch of people, a really nice people. I'm going to start to go on the road. I'm going to take it on the road like the Kelly Grayson show, man. So anytime you, anytime you apply <laughs> for somewhere, let me know. I'm going to come right back and piggyback off your coattails. All right. All right, well, Kelly, you know, usually we start off with the news, but we're really excited. Uh, we're going to go to the guest table here in a minute, and let me go ahead and give you a little bit of setup of what's going on for you guys that are listening out there. You know, Kelly, you and I have said it for a long time. 
We're really excited. Uh, you know, I only think that there's you and I who listen to the show, but I guess we have fans out there. And of course, they send us emails and they send us questions. And you know, hey, Chris and Kelly, what do you, what would you do about this? And, and uh, you know, we try to do our best to kind of answer those questions. Well, that's what kind of happened. And we're gonna bring uh, we're gonna bring our guest in. His name is Phil Frankel. And uh, he's out of Sacramento, California, and he, he was contacting us, and he wanted some insight. You know, we're doing the shows all about, uh, you know, driving lights and sirens and safety. And, mm-hmm. you know, you and I have become really concerned about the, uh, you know, the, the amount of accidents and the people that are getting hurt. And uh, we figure we'll just bring him on. We'll hear what he has to say, answer some of his questions. We'll kind of do it uh, on the show. And we yeah. thought it, it would be a really great opportunity. So without further ado, let's go ahead and bring him in here. Phil, how you doing? Welcome to Inside EMS. Hi, Chris. Kelly, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Doing well, Phil. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Why don't you go ahead and let everybody know a little bit about yourself, Phil, a little bit about your background, who you are, so uh, as we begin, they at least have a background to say, oh, this guy doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. Absolutely, Chris. Um, I'm an EMT out here in Sacramento, and I've uh, been licensed for a little over two years. But uh, only working for about six months, I had a two-year-old, so that kind of took precedence since my intro into EMS. Uh, the company I work for is uh, all over Northern California, pretty much in the Bay Area, almost to Reading, not quite. Hopefully, we're expanding soon. So awesome. So you've been an EMT for how long? About two years, you said? I've been licensed for a couple years, um, but I've only been working for about six months. All right, cool. So... You you went ahead and reached out to uh, Kelly and I, and, and you wanted to talk about, uh, I guess you have concerns about uh, being a new EMT and getting behind the wheel of that big ambulance and, uh, you know, kind of driving lights and sirens. So why don't you go ahead and lay on the inside EMS couch, and uh, let's go ahead and hear what some, <laughs> of your, some of your thoughts are and see if we can help you uh, crack some of those uh, challenges. Absolutely, guys. I'm, you know, driving around all the time, and friends in EMS, I'm always uh, hearing all the horror stories through the news and uh, EMS 1, Facebook. seems like every day that I see about uh, a line of duty death or an injury uh, in regards to an ambulance going with some sirens. It's, like I said, it's almost like a daily event and it's a big issue I think we need to really focus on because we are losing too many good people or too many good people are getting injured doing it yeah I, I think you're right let me ask you this question then so as a new emt what kind of what kind of driver training did you have before you got behind the wheel of that ambulance and and were able to flip on the lights and sirens and 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 respond to uh, someone's emergency did you have any good training the only evoc train i have personally is through the uh, police academy uh, i've not been through evoc company are you an officer as well I'm not, no. I just went, I went to the academy uh, a number of years ago before I decided to switch to the uh, the light side of EMS. So, uh, so you, the EVOC training you received was driving a, a squad car, not the uh, ambulance that weighs three times as much, right? Absolutely. You know, that, from our past conversations, Phil, that, that thing that floored me when you told me that, that there is no requirement in California for... Uh, ambulance services to have EVOC training or SIVO or, or any kind of emergency vehicle uh, operations training uh, for their their drivers. That floors me. Whether whether it's a uh, a state requirement or not, I, I can't imagine insurers being willing to uh, 
to uh, share a fleet of vehicles uh, equipped with lights and sirens if the people that are driving those vehicles have not been trained to, to operate an emergency vehicle. Um, uh, so your, your company doesn't uh, doesn't require its uh, its driver to uh, be EBOC certified at all? Uh, the only requirements are that we have um, our ambulance driver certificate, which is um, here at a California DMV. It's just a simple, you know, 15, 20, you know, something uh, question test. And you pay the typical $35, $50 application fee, pa you know, pass the test, and they, they issue you your certificate. Wow. Uh, when I was a very young EMT, I, I had uh, I had been driving an ambulance for uh, two or three months when uh, our our insurance uh, underwriter stopped by and and filling out the paperwork to renew our our services liability insurance. And she discovered that I didn't have a chauffeur's license. Uh, I only had just a standard driver uh, operator's license. Right and. Uh, they took me off the truck. I had to go and, and get a chauffeur license, and that was the only uh, driver I had initially. Um, the boss came and tossed me a uh, driver's education pamphlet. And, uh, the the show stuff is the back ten pages. Uh, your appointment to take your test at one o'clock this afternoon. So I, I leafed through that, went down to the DMP, and, and took my my chauffeur's license down. And that was all I got. Now, within a year or so, we started actually teaching, uh, or our version of he didn't require a, uh, or our insurer did not require a specific course, just, right. uh, some type of emergency thing. So we, we adapted uh, EVOC to our needs. But, um, so I know how you feel, man. I just can't imagine that, that insurers are willing to turn people loose uh, and underwrite you know, a policy uh, for, for untrained emergency drivers yeah you know one of the things that you bring up kelly is uh, there's a lot of ems agencies that require that chauffeur's license and it really doesn't make that big of a difference i mean that 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 class of that class of license i mean really what's the big difference between that and a regular you know driver's license you got to answer some more questions on a test but even with a chauffeur's license it's not like you're driving a limo to take a road test or anything but you know no. Phil, let me ask you this question. So as you've now been driving and, you know, six months you've been on the job and you're flipping on the lights and sirens, what do you find to be the biggest challenges now of handling that uh, ambulance with an, a patient on board and without a patient on board? I'd really be interested to hear as you start to develop your experience, what are some of the things that you're seeing or feeling that uh, is maybe making you uneasy? Uh, definitely with a patient on board, I would have to say uh, not knowing the streets as well as I would like to, not knowing where the, you know, the big potholes and the bumpy roads and the train tracks are, because that'll really send my my partner, in the, you know, flying to the roof. You know, no matter how slow you go yeah. over a, a rough train tracks, it, it's all it's all bad. But the question first is, do you like your partner? Because I think that if you didn't... <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Phil, go ahead, finish. <laughs> And uh, I've noticed quite a few other players, and I'm not going to mention names or companies, but they tend to like to blow through uh, red lights with not even slowing down the 10 miles an hour. It's just, you know, bore right against the red. That's the that's the problem in a nutshell with with uh, safety and fatality EMS, almost uh, death standards. Half of our 
uh, EMS fatalities are from motor vehicle accidents. And, you know, we can talk about better standards and manufacturing standards for ambulances and, and all of that, other initiatives, uh, safety initiatives, but it all boils down to if we quit like idiots, uh, we can cut our survival, I mean, we can cut our, our, our on-the-job fatality rates in half. Yeah, we, we don't need to be fast, we need to be smooth. Uh, what's that? That's right. Kelly, slowest, smooth, smoothest, fast. All right, that's, that's my mantra. Yeah, but he's Absolutely. talking. He's talking about when he's eating chicken, though. I mean, I think that that's that's different. But well, let me ask you this, though. I mean, I I think that do we as a career field develop the mentality that we're going to be driving, you know, lights and sirens crazy to the hospital, running through red lights? I mean, so as we're recruiting in our career field now. Are, are we using this this ambulance, uh, you know, the thought of all this reckless driving as, as part of a recruiting tool? I mean, I'm an advocate, and Kelly, you and I have talked about this before. I'm an advocate of not even using lights and sirens. I mean, Kelly, you, oh, and, yeah. I, you and I, when we do patient care, I, I think we're of the same uh, volition here that if there's something that the hospital can do that I can't do in the back of the ambulance is the only time I'd flip those lights and sirens on. But do we really need to get to a point now where we need to even stop lights and sirens response and, or not response, but transport, because we don't know what we're going to get on the other end. And you and I, we've had this discussion before and boy, have we pissed people off with this comment, but yeah. we don't want to, we don't want to uh, downplay the response because we do have to get there as quickly as practical. But you know, as far as the transport goes, you know, do we need to take this away? I think so. You know, I uh, I let Philip weigh in with his with his uh, opinion, but you know, I, I think that my my personal philosophy has always been that the emergency ends when I arrive on scene. Um, it's a it's a, a very small fraction of patients where I feel that that their time sensitive conditions and the interventions they need or something that I cannot provide, and their life is in danger because of it, uh, you know, it has to meet those those three criteria for me to drive a light tires. Um, and a smooth drive is a heck of a lot more important than a fast drive. So, yeah, I, I think we, we do a whole lot of, of driving light sirens totally unnecessarily, and, and uh, uh, if we shut them off and, and follow the traffic rules, it seems to be a, a heck of a lot safer and better for our people. I believe that if we uh, started at the beginning, you know, if lights and sirens driving and transport in general was more than just a paragraph in the EMT book, uh, we could set a lot better example. I think that brings up a really good point, Phil, when you say that is, you know, and we, we try to, we cover these accidents in the news almost every week, Kelly. It seems that every time we, we, we talk about a news story, we're talking about a new uh, MVA that's happened with fatalities, without fatalities. How many of our of our peers out there in the United States are uh, not getting the training to handle these ambulances? And, and you know, when you get the weight of that ambulance that's moving behind you at fifty miles an hour, you you know you you need to increase your stopping distance. And and, and if you haven't been trained into the you know how the box is going to tip on a turn, or you know the 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 you know how much weight is coming behind you as you're trying to stop, you know, are we really setting our career field up for uh, you know these MVAs to happen? Yeah, I think the one of the probably the, the best exercise that I've ever done in a box class is something we added on our own as our final step to 
our EVOC training at the service I started out with was is we would strap uh, every EMT down to a board, uh, spinally immobilize, put them on a stretcher, and then give them a nice code three run to the hospital through our service area. Not trying to be intentionally rough, just drive. And then actually we're keeping it at the speed limit. So just let them see normal drive, uh, finally immobilized and helpless to brace yourself. And that's an eye-opener. If you've never been in that situation, it's a real eye-opener for just how rough ambulance is, even when you're not uh, um, rushing well through traffic and, and, and uh, taking corners on two wheels. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty rough deal, and... and and, you know, it promotes a lot of empathy and uh, mindfulness in the department when they, when they are, the position is reversed, when they're actually driving a, a patient loaded. I did some research. Um, there, NHTSA came out with a study published in April of 14, spanning between 1992 and 2011. And the, uh, the annual mean is 29 fatal crashes with 33 deaths. That's the annual mean. And I am willing to bet that 90-plus percent of those deaths were avoidable. Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a really good point. Yeah, I think you bring up yeah, a good I point, I Phil. So, uh, you know, what do you think, you know, now as you start to move into your career, how do you get the confidence? What do you think, Phil? I mean, what's the confidence now for you to, you know, is it just practice? Do you need to take the ambulance out when you're not working? I mean, how do you think you get the experience you need to ensure that, uh, you know, you're getting people to the, the calls as well as the hospital as safe as you can? What I do, a little trick, is that every time that I am, uh, I need to turn those lights and sirens on, I uh, take three deep breaths before I do anything else. That way it calms my nerves, get some good oxygen up in my brain, and take it slow. And not insanely slow, but plan my moves out. You know, give, give myself a little extra room in case the driver in front of me decides to cut me off. You know, anticipate what someone's going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are good things. You know, one of the things I used to do, Kelly, when I uh, when mm-hmm. I started to drive, when I had a, a patient as well as my partner in the back, and uh, this is before things got really strict, is I would unbuckle my seatbelt, and I would drive to the hospital uh, just like my partner would, un- untethered, and uh, t- to make me more aware that, you know what, I'm not safe if they're not safe. Yeah, <laughs> I think we, we could get away with that now, but that, that is... That, that is a good point about, you know, kind of changing your mindset, you know. If, if, um, obviously, that wouldn't fly today. Um, but if you're getting thrown around in the front of the uh, driving and, and you can see what's coming and you can anticipate uh, the forces that you're being subjected to, uh, just imagine how bad it is trying to render patient care in the back. Uh, that's, that's um, you know, that's a good point. Um, Philip, I, I have a question for you. you you're into your, your two months into your EMS career. Um, how much uh, how much nine one one stuff and lights and sirens do you do, or, or is your company primarily uh, in a facility transfer? Uh, we're primarily IFTs. Um, we also do uh, CCT. Our nurses yeah. have fly cars. And so the majority of the time that we run lights and sirens, it's with a critical patient from one hospital to another. Gotcha. Yeah, um, still Absolutely, and it's even uh, more more critical to maintain a smooth ride, especially if 
my nurse has sharps out or is hooking up the vent or resetting the vent, or whatever the case may be. That way, you know, there, there are more people in the ambulance that can get injured. Yeah. So, uh, do you still get the adrenaline rush when you engage the lights and sirens, man? Absolutely. Uh, I started taking those three deep breaths before I start running, and that reduces the, the adrenaline rush. Yeah. But it also increases my the, concentration. That's funny. Man. Yeah, the big question is, is do you do you crave the adrenaline rush? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the, that's the that's the newbie right there, isn't it, Kelly? Yeah, that's the newbie, and, and, uh, and that's uh, part of the that's part of the problem with changing the mindset right. and the culture in EMS uh, toward you know a more safety oriented culture and and, and uh, driving slower and, and less like the siren spot because the you know a lot of people and. and you and I probably were the exact same as, as Phil when we started out, Chris. We wanted to go out there and save lives and sample disease right. and pestilence, and, 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 and we craved that adrenaline rush. Um, I think it's, uh, I think that's part of your maturation as a provider is when right. you, you no longer crave that and you start to see it in a broader context, uh, safety-wise. Um, you know, it's, it's good for you that you're, you even though you still like the adrenaline rush, uh, you at least starting to look at it in a broader context uh, and realize that uh, it can be harmful. I, I always consider it that every time those lights and sirens turn on, that the danger factor increases by a factor of 10. I mean, that's not an imperial number, but that that's kind of how I look at it, is that this this job just got a whole lot more dangerous. Well, Kelly, let's let's go ahead and switch gears a little bit because uh, you know I, I, when you said this thing about adrenaline, this really kind of uh, got me thinking about a, a, an email we received from one of our listeners about uh, two weeks ago or so. And and uh, Phil, I want to get your opinion on this as well since you're a new provider. And I'm going to paraphrase uh, the email, and this comes to us from Tori, who's in South Dakota. And I guess one of the things that had happened to her is on a critical call, her hands started to shake. And she started to get a lot of grief from her partners and from her peers who are now saying that she's afraid to do the job, that she's, uh, you know, kind of like if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen type of thing. And one of the things I think is really important now is, Kelly, as you talk about adrenaline, it's not that you're afraid. It's the fact that your adrenaline is starting to pump. And remember, when you think about the fight or flight syndrome, either you're supposed to run or you're supposed to start punching people. So you now got that adrenaline that's running through your body and your hands now need to do something. And if they're not doing anything, they're going to start to shake. And that is a normal process that happens mm -hmm. anytime we get into those situations. And it's a shame that one of our listeners is now being uh, kind of chastised by our peers because they think that she's afraid to do the job or, you know, she, you know, she shouldn't even be in the career field. Yeah. I, that's first of all, why, why do EMS people insist on eating their young, you know, don't be a douchebag and, and pick on people who, who don't react to stress and, and don't react to, to certain things the same way you do. Uh, we're all in this to help patients, but okay. Off my soapbox. That's a natural response. Just she, her body hasn't learned to to accommodate stress. She hasn't she hasn't been stress inoculated, and and it's a natural response. Phil pointed out an excellent technique for dealing with that. And that's those breathing exercises. That's something that those 
doesn't just apply to, to him running emergency response. They, you know, they teach this sort of thing in, in the military. Uh, they teach it in, in self-defense firearms classes. Uh, they call it combat breathing. A few deep cleansing breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth, help you focus and center, uh, get a little oxygen to your brain, and help deal with that, with that stress reaction. Um, but I think that, uh, <laughs> yeah, Nancy and I were, Nancy and I were watching, uh, For Love of the Game last night, and, uh, and great movie, the, uh, great the movie, character. by the way. Great movie. Yeah, I love that movie. Uh, and and Billy Chapel has a has a little ritual he goes through, and and it's probably the same thing. Uh, it's similar to uh, to the, the combat breathing and everything else. You know, when he wants to focus, his ritual is he says clear the mechanism, and all the the background noise and the cheering and everything fades into the background, and the only thing that is there is is him and the batter. Um, and that's that's what the the breathing is going to help you do. Uh, it's going to help you clear the mechanism and focus on the task at hand. For there's nothing wrong with shaking. Uh, what hopefully with a, a few more calls under your belt uh, and some some techniques to control your your stress response, the shaking if it happens will happen after the call. Um, but uh, you'll get through this and uh, don't. Don't pay attention to the haters uh, who, who think that you don't have what it takes just because your handshake loaded. Right, Phil. What do you think? I mean, you're you're a new uh, EMT, six months. Is, is this something that's plagued you? Have you have you seen this happen to you before when you start to uh, help deal with those critical patients? What's kind of your advice for Tori? Uh, one thing that my instructor uh, really imparted to me in EMT school was go back to ABC. If that's the only thing that you can remember, ABC and Diesel. That'll get you to the hospital. Manage those three things. Focus, focus on process. When you're, uh, I'm, I'm trying to write an EMS one article on this right now. It is a lot of people freeze up uh, when they're first uh, asked to, to run a call or they're put in a new situation. They tend to lock up and freeze. And I equate this to not knowing how to eat an elephant. You look at the enormity of the situation, you're overwhelmed by it, and you're consumed with uh, analysis paralysis can't do anything. Uh, the, the key to getting through it is to focus on process. Uh, step A, step B, step C. Be methodical about it. Pretty soon, you'll you'll look down at your plate. You'll you know, you'll look up from your plate. You'll wonder where the elephant went. Yeah, and one of the things to think about as well as as an EMT, and I, I don't get from the uh, you know from the uh, email if you're an EMT or a paramedic, but one of the things to think about as well is this: if you're an EMT. You know, I have a specific way as a paramedic how I want to deal with my calls. Kelly has a, a specific way how he wants to deal with his calls. Maybe you have a set partner. Maybe you go around uh, with different partners. But I would ask them in the beginning of the of the shift as well, what is it that you want me to do for you? How can I help you do your job? So one of the things that I would request of my EMTs is I did the assessment. When I did an assessment, and, and you may like this out there in, in Inside EMS podcast world, you may like but it was my responsibility to make sure that I assess the patient, put them on a right treatment path, and if it was a BLS call, I would downgrade the call BLS. So my the EMTs that I were working with would need to understand or listen to what was going on so they knew where the treatment path was going to go if it was a BLS call. But I did the assessment. 
I was the only one that talked to the patient. I didn't want that that tennis match of going back and forth with the patient's head of going between you know the EMS providers of who they were listening to or who they were answering. So I would tell the EMTs that were working with me, as soon as we go in, I want a set of vital signs. I want to know exactly what's going on. If we need to put the patient on a monitor, I'll kind of give you the high sign to do that. And the, so they knew, they anticipated of what was happening rather than just to guess. And I don't think we do that well enough, Kelly, to say, you know, here's what you can expect. Here's what you can do to help, you know, during this patient care. And I think we really need to start to consider that and do that. Now, I know that there are different paramedics who do different things out there, but how do you yeah. handle that with your partners? I, I approach it pretty much the same way you do. And one of, one of the things that, that is excellent at combating stress is being able to plan your steps, knowing what comes back. Uh, I phrase it a little differently than you do. You say you, you like to form the assessment. Um, my philosophy is, is I gather the history, um, and my partner does the assessment. And, and what I mean by that is they do the vast majority of the physical assessment of the patient. They auscultate the lone sounds. They do the palpation. They do the, the application of the cardiac monitor and EKG electrodes, and they take the vital signs. And if there's anything assessment-wise that, that's beyond their capability as an EMT, which is really few things on the scene, um, I'll go ahead and do that myself. Uh, and most, But the way I look at it is, is I'm paid for what's between my ears more than I'm paid for what I do with my hands. Um, so I stand back and, and I gather history um, and let my partner do the hands-on stuff. And when we get in the back of the truck, which is where most of my hands-on stuff is, is occurring uh, with the wheels rolling, I'll do uh, most of my ALS interventions and route to the hospital. But once you get into that groove, it's a heck of a lot easier to uh, to not get stressed out by it. Yeah, uh, Chris, if I may uh, jump in here real quick. Uh, at my service, we mostly do BLS, IFT, but we also have some ALS uh, ambulances. And uh, my first shift, or before my first shift with the paramedic, I asked a really good friend of mine. She's a paramedic up in uh, Mendocino County. Um, hey, you know, if you were me, what would you, what would you say to the paramedic uh, when you first got got on duty? And she told me, ask ask your medic, you know, what are what are their ex expectations of me as their new partner? You know, and uh, that was probably the best piece of advice that she could ever have gave me. And that I, put me and the medic on the same page. And I think that you're absolutely right. You know, one of the things that we got to remember is, I, I think one of the things that we need to teach in, in training is, is how to develop the team. We don't do that. You know, there's different personalities. There's 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 different levels of experience. There, you know, you're going to run across those paramedics that are just egotistical as hell, and they won't even talk to you. You know, and and we, we got to stop that. But we've got to be able to develop a team, find out what's the well-oiled machine, find out how to make it work. And, and I'll tell you, you become a great paramedic. I'm sorry, you become a great EMT by working with different paramedics, because you get to know different styles and you get to know, you know, different mm -hmm. treatment mode. And, and as an EMT, I, I don't know that I can do that job. And, and I have tons of respect for all the EMTs out there, you know, but talk to the paramedics, find out what those expectations are. But Kelly, you know, I, I think we've got a, a great opportunity here. We've got, we got Phil that joined us to talk about driving lights and sirens. We're helping Tori out there in, in South Dakota. And, and I got to tell you, man, I think we had a really great show and, uh, it may be time to put the wraps on another one. Yeah, it's, uh, it was a it was a great uh, discussion, and 
kind of a, a blast from the past, revisiting my uh, my days when I was uh, still young and sparky. Uh, I'm still young, uh, relatively speaking. I'm just not that sparky anymore. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you're the, you're the smartest, per- smartest. You're the smartest person on this podcast. How about that? Yeah, well, um, I appreciate that, and I'll I'll pay you the money I owe you for that. Thank uh, you very later. much. I could use that twenty dollars, <laughs> so thank you for that. You know, that's one of the things I really like about uh, you know having uh, chats and conversations with guys like Phil and, and working with the EMTs I do at, at Acadian is uh, for for seven years now I've I've gotten new EMTs out of class, um, and while while it's sometimes problematic and you don't. It takes you a while to develop a groove, and you're only in that groove for four or five months before you get a new EMT uh, partner. Um, it also keeps you fairly fresh. You know, you get to see EMS through uh, the eyes of a, of a new rookie, and uh, uh, it, it gives you some perspective, uh, reminds you of why you got into it. So uh, that kind of thing I like. Um, and, Phil, we want to thank you for, for being on the show. And to wrap it up, uh, for myself and co-host Chris Settlero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMF. You guys, be sure to rate us on iTunes. Give us your concerns, comments, and questions at the show at EMS1.com. And for myself and the rest of the gang, this is Kelly Grace, and thanks for tuning in to Inside EMF. <laughs>